episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey, filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off, and I'm very happy to welcome writer and director of the Noepe Center for Literary Arts up in Martha's Vineyard, Mathea Moray, to the show. Hey. Hey, welcome, Mathea. Mathea. Thank you. Mathea Murray was raised in St. Louis, Missouri. She has a degree in literature from NYU and worked in music journalism for many years, which I want to talk about. That's sure. fairly interesting. <laughs> How you went from one to the yeah. to the other. Yeah. Her work has appeared in the New Engagement, Slush Pile Magazine, Arts and Ideas, and Anti-Heroin Chic. She's the director of the Noepe Center for Literary Arts on Martha's Vineyard and has taught creative writing to children and young adults for over 15 years. She lives with her husband and her three daughters and a beloved dog. What's the dog's name? Cassius. Cassius. Okay. <laughs> Mathea just met my beast who's staring at us. Oh no, she's through the window. Sleeping. She's peacefully. Out. <laughs> she went to the vet today, so she's not happy. <laughs> and you just read for Dead Rabbits last night. Which I did. Is exciting. It was really fun. Yes, your book just came out in October, right? It did. Yeah, it's like it's almost four-month birthday, a couple of days, I think, yeah. Have you been yeah. doing a book tour or anything? Not officially. I've done a few readings on Martha's Vineyard, and I read in Boston, and I went back to St. Louis and did kind of a St. Louis book launch in December, and then just coming to you guys. It's really been sort of low-key, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which has been nice. I'm not necessarily a big traveler, so the idea of going all around the country and staying in hotels was not high on my list and yeah martha's vineyard's hard enough to get off and on (laughs) you gotta take a ferry Mm -hmm. yep includes a lot of different modes of transportation (laughs) well let's talk about your background first and how you came when did you start writing i don't know i think i was like 15 or 16 the first time i wrote like an actual story that Mm -hmm. i was like oh this is a story but You know, writing off and on since then, I did a lot of journalism Mm -hmm. coming out of out of college and all the way up. And I I think I started really writing fiction seriously after I had my first kid, which was 20 years ago now. It's crazy. And it took a long time because I didn't, you know, because I had I had I had kids pretty young. I really wasn't in a place to sort of go that MFA mm-hmm. route. And so I really had to be kind of self-taught, mm. which meant a lot of writing really bad stuff for <laughs> yeah. a really long time. I think that's true <clears throat> whether you're in an MFA or not. <laughs> right. I just was – it took me a little bit longer and um, I had to, you know – I, I didn't have to pay for it, so I yeah. guess that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without that debt. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I started working on this – book actually right after Michael Brown was murdered Mm. in St. Louis. I was, you know, far away. It had been many years since I'd lived there, but I had wanted to write about what it was like growing up there Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much ever since I left and realized that my life experience wasn't like everybody else's, Mm -hmm. you know, or or I think I just assumed that everybody else grew up the way I did, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And once I left and came up to the Northeast and New York and New England and realized how very different it was. But then at the same time, realized the perception that people in New York and New England have about what it's like in the Midwest or mm-hmm. the South. Because St. Mm-hmm. Louis is kind of one of those places that's sort of both. It's Yeah, I'm from Little Rock originally. Mm-hmm. So, so right, I yeah. think we talked about that. Yeah. So we, you know, we, you know, there's this, mm-hmm. this, this concept, like this preconceived notion of what it's like outside, anywhere outside of New England or in the Northeast, and it's wrong. So when Michael Brown was murdered, I felt, I think like a lot of people felt I was far away. I, I didn't wasn't living there anymore, but I wanted to somehow mm-hmm. contribute. I wanted to, I, I you know, not feel hopeless. Yeah. And I thought about what it was that I personally had to add to the conversation and and I felt like this that was it that I was far away, you know that I was from there and I was far away and what it felt like to sort of look back around this event to what it meant to grow up there in the 90s and mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s I'm curious because I feel like maybe St. Louis probably has a better 
number of authors coming out of it than Little Rock. There's like literally two <laughs> that I could probably uh-huh. name. Okay, we got Charles Portis, and that's about it in Little Rock. Are there any other authors from St. Louis that you, I don't know, were inspired by or come to mind just thinking of that portrait you're painting? No. I mean, there are definitely writers that have come out of there, but like, like Jonathan Franzen has written about St. Louis. Oh, really? Um, I can look it up. No, it's and fine. I, and I didn't love anything that he wrote. He yeah. was writing about a very different St. Louis than I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and that was also part of it. I felt like there was, you know, there was no st- story that was the story of what I experienced. And so I felt like, I, well, it's one of those things. If, if no one else is going to write it, then I have to be, sure. you know, if this is the book I want to read. As per Toni Morrison, I I need to be the one to write it. And so that's sort of what started it. And then it was, there's this record store. It's in St. Louis. It's called Vintage Vinyl. And I never worked there. I was just a groupie. My brother worked there. My husband worked there. The guy I'm staying with down in Brooklyn, he worked there. (laughs) Um, And it was just this kind of really safe space. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about what it would be like if that went away because record stores were closing down mm. all over the place. And, and I thought, okay, there's sort of a, a place to start the story from of what if that really safe space in a city during a time where the city was grappling with how it felt about itself mm-hmm. and it's what it meant to be safe to different people went away. You know, what if it lost that? And so that was sort of where I, you know, started from. What was happening in St. Louis at the time, the 80s and 90s? St. Louis is an incredibly segregated city. It's probably one of the most segregated Same cities. as Little yep. Rock, yeah. In the United States, it has kind of historically been a place where, you know, people have clashed around that, segre- around that segregation. And there's a street that runs through St. Louis from the downtown all the way out into the county that literally divides the city in yep. half. That's I-630 in Little mm-hmm. Rock. It's... Um, yeah, and this is called Delmar Boulevard. And, oh, and they I know call that it the, boulevard. <laughs> the Delmar, they call it the Delmar Divide. And there's this little spot around Washington University that's called, well, it's called University City. And mm-hmm. when I grew up there in the 80s and 90s, and probably started in like 60s and 70s, there was this real attempt to desegregate in a a thoughtful and real way, Mm -hmm. you know, not just I'm going to put my kids on the bus and they're going to go to different schools or like we're going to live together. We're Mm going to live together. We're going to know each other. We're going to have our kids go to the same schools. We're going to build our synagogues and our churches and our everything right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of when I came in to that, to the city was sort of in that era. It didn't last very long. White people started moving out, but not before there was kind of this group of people who had grown up together. Mm -hmm. And so that was really what I wanted to write about was Mm. these friends that found each other because of where they lived, but also because of music and because of this record store and because of coming to, you know, Mm -hmm. wanting to find a different space other than the space that they've been segregated to for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so I felt really, and like I said, I was like, oh, this is just the way I figured that's just how young people were. I figured that's what teenagers did. That's just what I thought happened. And then that they came together and they found each other and, and, and all of the the stuff sort of was there, but wasn't there so much that they couldn't be friends with each other. They couldn't mm-hmm. spend time in each other's houses. They couldn't know each other's families. When I left St. Louis and came up here, I realized it was very different. How so? I found it much more, even though everybody lived in the same city, people didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was a, you know, a big city thing versus a small town thing. New York's a pretty segregated city too. Yeah, definitely. You know, and so to have, to to kind of get here and feel like, wait a second, why, why is, why are all these people together and yet nobody like knows each other? Mm-hmm. So that was different for me. Is that how it feels on Martha's Vineyard, or does it feel more like a community? Martha's Vineyard is a really interesting place in that it is very, very different in the wintertime than it is in the summertime. So yeah, it's dead, right? 
It's there are fifteen thousand people that live there year round, wow. and there are a hundred and fifty thousand people there in the summertime. Wow! So it goes from this incredibly small, mm-hmm. very rural, very kind of quiet small town mm-hmm. to of people who are very much working class, on or below the poverty line. Wow! To the richest people in the yeah, I was about to say that's all you really think yeah. of Martha's Vineyard, right. and it's so it's it's really hard to deal with the the preconceived notion. Like when my kid was applying for financial aid, they were making all these assumptions mm. because of our zip code, you know. And it's just it's it's very very different. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing community in that it's very rural and very you know kind of nature centric, but it's also pretty pretty liberal and left, which, as you know, coming from Arkansas, there's not a lot of rural communities no. <laughs> that, that are also liberal, you know. So there's enough of an exposure to politics and ideas and culture there that that happens all year long. Mm-hmm. And it's not a an incredibly racially diverse place in the winter time although it's more so than many places but it's very much a community yeah very much people who sort of bond around the other is is are the summer people that come in yeah you know so so if you're there all year you're part of of a group that is going to hold you Mm -hmm. all the time regardless you know of what you look like or yeah. you know, your background, which is nice. What brought you to Martha's Vineyard? My growing up, my mother, my parents were professors, and so they had a house up there. And so every summer, I would leave St. Louis, which was this kind of bizarre dichotomy to live through. Every summer, we would leave St. Louis and go spend the whole summer on Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And in the seventies and eighties, kind of pre-Clinton, it was very much this kind of liberal art haven summertime thing this very rich thing is is a new is an, is the new Martha's Vineyard mm-hmm. so once I had kids and once I was in Northeast and then I was in Boston and then I was a single parent and I was like you know what I I just need a place where I can actually let my kids run around outside and so I moved to my mom's house and sort of figured out how to make it work in the wintertime because it wasn't really <laughs> set up for that and then we were hooked. Like once we were there for a year, we mm-hmm. kind of started out for a year to see what it would be like. And then we were like, oh, we can't ever go anywhere else. This is this is it. It's this yeah. or, you know, Europe. <laughs> <laughs> this or Europe. Yeah, this or Europe. Well, let's talk about the Noepe Center because okay. that's, that's kind of how we got connected. We're, we got connected through our mutual publicist, mm-hmm. JKS Communication. Yeah, Shout out. She's, Marissa, she's amazing. Yeah. Noepe was started over 10 years ago by a poet, a man named Justin Aaron, who lives on Martha's Vineyard. And it was started in a bed and breakfast in Egertown. And he really wanted to just create space for writers and, and community for writers. And, and it was wonderful. And he would bring writers in to do workshops and he would have, you know, had residencies and it was in this beautiful old inn. And then he lost the inn, the woman who owned it had to sell it and Mm. so he kind of said all right I'm gonna put it all on hold for a while and I was so bummed because it was one of those ways in which I could live on an island and yet have access to writers who weren't from the island you Mm -hmm. know so there's a lot of great writers on the island but after a little while we've all heard each other read a lot (laughs) we're kind of like bored of each other's stuff and you know we've kind of learned what we can learn from each other and, Mm -hmm. and writing is such a learning process you know so I was just so sad to lose this place where other voices were coming in. And he started doing other stuff. And I connected with, I have a great friend who is the director of the Featherstone Center for the Arts. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful kind of sprawling art center. And they just build all these new buildings. And it's, you know, they've got everything. They've got pottery. They've got Mm -hmm. printmaking and photography. And I said writing is art you know you what if we bring these two things together what if Mm -hmm. we re you know reinvigorate noepe and have it happen here 
at Featherstone. And so Justin and Ann and I got together and sort of hashed that out. And that's, you know, what ha- he he's doing a lot of writing and photography. And he was like, I, you know, I want to be involved, but I can't. I don't want to run it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I decided I would. That's where you came that's in. That's where I came in. Yeah. And comes back to this whole idea of not having an MFA, you know, part of what I wanted to sort of build on what he had already done was to try to make a space for people who aren't able to go that route, right, yeah. for whatever reason, whether they come to writing late in life, whether they can't afford that kind of, you know, to take that kind of time off. Mm-hmm. You know, I could never go do a five-week residency. I have a no. job, yeah. you know. I have kids. I have a family. So what kind of residency could I do? What mm-hmm. would it, What what kind of thing could I offer to people, to writers that would work for them in their real lives, you know? So we're working towards having, you know, weekend workshops and, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe long weekend residencies and, you know, sort of really bite size can do in your real life Mm -hmm. access to, to writing and probably moving towards doing more stuff in the shoulder seasons to again, what's, what's a shoulder, what's a shoulder season? season? Shoulder <laughs> season, sorry, is like spring and fall. Okay. Um, so the the big season on the vineyard is is you know July and August, and it's nearly impossible. It's expensive as hell. It's nearly mm. impossible to get over. You know, all the boats are full, all the inns are full, all the restaurants are full, and it's just kind of annoying. You yeah. know, as a writer, what you want is space and quiet. You know, so but. May, June, September, October, which are called the shoulder seasons, are beautiful and much more calm and everything's still open Mm -hmm. and so it's much more accessible. So we're really looking towards, and again, making it accessible, making it, if I'm trying to put my life, patch my life together with this job and this job and I'm writing and I'm doing this, I don't have enough money to come to Martha's Vineyard in July. You know, I can't pay that kind of room rate, Mm -hmm. you know. But I maybe could come up in October, you know, maybe I could get a long weekend, maybe I could do. So so really thinking about what people who have lives that, you know, aren't funded some other way, mm-hmm. you know, or have expenses and, and responsibilities that don't allow them to sort of have that kind of access to time mm-hmm. and space that writers need. How can, what can I how can I create that for them? Does the Noepe Center, is it a, a residence? Do people stay on there or no, they have to stay outside? They okay. have to, currently they have to stay outside. So we're sort of looking to, you know, working with different inns to see, you know, who's got some space maybe in, in the spring and yeah. in the fall where we could kind of put some residencies together mm-hmm. um, where people could come for four or five days and stay. You know, again, I I, I don't, I, there's lots of amazing long residencies for people to do. And sure. really, you know, it doesn't make sense necessarily to pay a lot of money to go somewhere just so you have a, a quiet room to be in. You know, if we can figure out a way that you can come have a quiet room to sit in, in a beautiful, inspiring place, you know, for not a lot of money. This sounds like a dream. Well, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like my dream. It's kind of like what I wished I, you know, I had my first kid at 25, you know, so I yeah. was not, once I realized what was expected of me as a writer and what I was sort of supposed to have done, I was like, fuck, I don't, I can't do this, you yeah. know? And so how am I supposed to, how am I even supposed to figure this out? And so that was sort of where... I kind of came to, and in this day, people have to have lots of jobs. Everybody yep. needs many jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can you have, create that space and time for people mm-hmm. that actually works in their lives? Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of your own writing and, and publishing and everything, when uh, had you published anything before this book? Any stories or anything? Yes. Or, so I yeah. published, I actually published a few stories that then went into this book mm-hmm. and I mean I you know like I said I was teaching myself how to write so I'd written like four novels but you also this. were a music journalist I right? was so did I, you go to school for that no nope. nope. I went just I got a straight English degree my first job out of college was at a place that was called Princeton Publishing 
And I was like, okay, you know, they needed an assistant to the publisher. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, this sounds cool. Like, I'm into magazines. They publish magazines. And I went in, and, and on the wall, there was, like, Cream Magazine, which is one of the original, like, you know, yeah, music yeah. magazines. Mm-hmm. And and there was a motorcycle magazine and a quilting magazine. I was like, okay, this is cool. And then I went in to talk to the woman who was the publisher. And I'm looking, and I'm like, there's porn on the wall. And I found out that they also published We Magazine, the O-U-I, you know, the French Yes, and Blue Boy Magazine, which is like the original like male gay porn magazine. And I went from, and I was like, okay, like I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, it was a paying job. It was publishing. I was working as an assistant and I was trying to write for Cream Magazine as a music journalist and wound up copy editing porn. That's like awesome. making sure there were like no typos that all the... So when does that book come out? <laughs> That's one that I have been thinking. I mean, I think the first day I was there, you know, some guy had a heart attack in the office and like, you know, it was, it was every single person that worked there was either under 25 yeah. or over 60. And was, <laughs> that is creepy. It was such an interesting place to work. I wound up working there for like two and a half years and, you know, I'm so it. jealous right but- now. I'm like fascinated <laughs> by the porn industry. Like, have I, you watched The Deuce or anything? Like I have. watching, yep, yeah. Yeah. And all of that is very, I mean, it, you know, it became like a job. And, and, you know, I would, sit with the art director and we'd be looking at these pictures and you know we're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out we need to you know get that part out of there that's so you're the person copy editing like sarah is a milkmaid in the middle of the woods that was my job like (laughs) i'm sure that like and a lot of times these things would be written by like you know quote unquote contributors you know be like Uh dudes in their house in you know long island or whatever and they would send in their story that they'd written And it was riddled with, you know, it, inaccuracies uh-huh. and typos. And, you know, so that's – it became what I had to do. I had to sit there and make sure that all the words were spelled right. Yeah. It was a, it was a great start. I'm um, excited to read those stories <laughs> when you write them, for sure. And then somehow that segued into working at – I can't really remember how it worked. But I think because the place – the publishing company also owned a printing press. That's what it was. They owned mm. a printing press like out in Michigan or something. And Trace Magazine, which is a British, was a British-based hip hop sort of style and music magazine, wanted to move to mm-hmm. bring start a United United States issue version of their of Trace, and they used that. Were looking to use that printing press, and so I started writing for them mm-hmm. and that was really where I really started you know spent a lot of time doing my my music journalism yeah and that was really fun that was but what well, uh, sadly it was a, you know I sort of got into magazine writing right when the internet exploded so magazines just started dropping mm-hmm. um, and so then a lot of my journalism was on websites that just are no longer don't exist Would anymore. we know any of them? I don't think so. I think... I'm trying to even remember the names of them. You know, there were these little things that would be like, this is the new startup of this new uh-huh. great, you know, and they would say, we're going to hire you, we're going to pay you this much money, and then two weeks later, they'd be like, actually, we just lost all our funding. We're not doing anything at all. Yeah. So at Trace, there was a... God, this is making me feel old that I can't remember the names of them. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> They'll come to me tonight yeah. at three, 3 o'clock in the Do you morning. Remember I'll remember them. Yeah. <laughs> well, so how so when did you start working on There You Are? Right around the, right after Michael Brown was murdered, I started. So that was the summer of 2014. So right away. Yeah. That was, okay. Yeah, it was really, you know, it was one of those things that the story had sort of been looking for a place to land mm-hmm. and that was really what where it landed and that's when it just sort of took off and I started writing it well can you give us a little synopsis of the book tell us what's sure it's so funny the way it's been you know when you read all the ways it's it's reviewed and and stuff yeah Yeah. um it's 
it was originally sort of positioned as a coming-of-age interracial love story that is set in a record store in St. Louis in the 80s and 90s. It has really four main characters that it sort of follows through the book. One is Mina, who is the daughter of a Jewish woman, single mother, really kind of fend for herself kid, Mm -hmm. who makes friends early on in the book with Octavian, who is black, who's the son of a professor and a poet, and whose mom dies pretty early in the story. Mm -hmm. And Octavian has an older brother named Francis, who's super dynamic, but really struggling with drug addiction. And throughout the book, Octavian and Mina sort of try to figure out their relationship with one another. There's Bones, who's the owner of the record store. And then there's Cyrus, who is Octavian's father. And those are really the four kind of key people. And then there's a this kind of significant group of friends that spend time together mm-hmm. at the record store and outside of the record store who, you know, impact Mina and Octavian's relationship in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the shooting of Michael Brown impacted the story that you mm-hmm. wanted to write, but it's mm-hmm. set very pre-Michael it, Brown. It is, except for that it kind of goes back and forth. So it it the Michael Brown piece is happening, and at the same time, Bones has decided he's going to close the record store. Mm-hmm. So he has invited all – he's going to throw a big party, and he's invited everyone back. And okay. so Mina and Octavian, who have left and haven't ta- – have left St. Louis and haven't really talked to each other in a long, you know, since they split apart, are both na- navigating what it means to watch the kind of fallout from Michael Brown's murder mm-hmm. and then also thinking about what it would mean to go home mm-hmm. and maybe see each other. So it sort of calls up all of these memories that they are both having about what it was like to grow up there. So so even though the story is mostly set in the 80s and 90s, it does have this 2014 piece that mm-hmm. that everyone is sort of keeps coming back to. So is there this reflection quality of looking at like what people were facing in the 80s and 90s versus 2014 and and how maybe similar it still is? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a that, you know, I think as someone who is from St. Louis, you know, it was it was clear that nothing had changed. Like mm-hmm. nothing had changed. And, and the only thing that had changed is that people had cameras on their phones that they could now document what, yeah. was, what had been going on for forever, you know, in St. Louis. And, you know, my friends would come to my house and immediately get pulled over on their way home, mm. you know, just instantly. And that was just standard way things were done Mm -hmm. and you know that that now people can just record it yeah that's really that's all the thing that's changed yeah Um, and unfortunately doesn't seem like it's changed that even that part you would think like okay now that you can record it now that you can see it things will things will change things will get better Mm -hmm. but we're yet haven't gotten there yet either. <laughs> well, are you up for reading? I, I would love to. I was thinking about what I should read, and I think I should be something short. And someone recently commented on the part, there's one part in the story that is told from the perspective of Francis, who is the older brother struggling with drug addiction. And this is sort of later in the book and isn't really anything about music but it's a really kind of condensed piece and i'm struggling to find it i am gonna record you on instagram just okay. a forewarning because i know you said that I you hated hearing voice. hated hearing your voice which a podcast is probably the worst thing for you to be on <laughs> but you don't have to listen to i it. don't have to listen to it. well since and a reader wrote about how this he felt like this was one of the best descriptions of what it was like to be addicted to, you know, to struggle with addiction. And I thought, wow, you know, I've never read this part aloud. And I love this part. And it was it was really hard to write. It was hard to write because it's hard to 
this care I love Francis so much who's the older brother character and it was really hard to get in his head and think about what it meant Mm -hmm. to to struggle the way he does each of the tracks that's each of the tracks each of the chapters is named for a song it has called track fifth this is track 15 and it's named for the song home is where the hatred is by gil scott heron which is a song about being a drug addict Hmm. all right what no one understood Francis thought what no one ever understood was how much sobriety hurt. Not emotional, make you want to cry, hurt, but actually hurt. Your bones, your muscles, your head. It hurt to take air in and out of your lungs. It hurt your heart to beat. Everyone else, they went on about their day, heart beating, lungs breathing, and they didn't even notice. But not me, Francis thought. I got to feel every fucking thing. Walking hurt and eating and taking a shit. When he was using, he kept it at bay, made it so he never felt it fully. A shot of vodka could hold back the violent sound of the rush of blood through his veins. A hit off a joint could turn the firing synapses in his brain down to a low simmer. A line of coke, well, that could crank everything up so high, even pain felt good. And a shot in the vein, that was the ultimate quieting, the purity of silence. That's what heroin washed through him. It made the shivering, the watering eyes, the itch under the fingernails that he could never reach disappear. Sobriety shouted in his ears and woke him in the night to sheets soaked in sweat, t-shirt and boxer shorts drenched salt in his mouth and eyes. At treatment, they told him to give it up to God, to count 12 steps, to amend and pray but he worried that God would not be able to hear his prayers over the yelling in his head. Francis walked, he meditated, he made love, he was celibate. He bought gifts for his father, he listened to his brother's records and read his mother's poems. He walked some more, danced, ate only vegetables for days, tried to pray. Sometimes he would look up from his walking and find himself down on Goodfellow, right around the corner from an easy silence, and he'd turn quickly, nearly rushing into traffic, to put distance between himself and the relief that was so close at hand. And then, sometimes, sometimes, there would be moments. Moments when peace broke through the pain like gold bars of sunlight streaming through holes in the clouds. And then Francis wondered if somewhere on the other side of the noise and the pain, there might be a moment when he didn't feel like he was running for his life. And just the brief possibility of even a little less pain calmed him long enough to make it another day. Mm. I'm going to ask a question, but yes. you can tell me if this is too personal. Um, but and I say this full disclosure that like I have addiction surrounding in my family. Listeners of our podcast know that Brian, our host, struggles with addiction and do you have, a, a, like, does addiction run in your family at all? Do you have experience with it? I have not personally ever found myself addicted to anything other than nicotine, which somehow I was able to really pull myself away from when I had my first kid. But I have Same. never <laughs> not known addicts. You've never not known mm-hmm. addicts? Mm-hmm. I have never. I've been in love with a lot of addicts. I've been friends with a lot of addicts. I've, you know navigated family members and siblings and close relatives and you know all of the things that I just I've never not known them they're Mm -hmm. they're very much a part of my of my world so that was not based on a personal experience but what I've witnessed right and what I've experienced and tried to understand from what you know I think it would feel like Mm mm-hmm I asked this because I wanted to get to kind of what we were talking about before Mm. we came on the podcast, Mm -hmm. right? So I I also am not, you know, haven't, other than nicotine is Mm -hmm. also, I say, my -hmm. my addiction, Mm -hmm. but have not, but I write a lot about addiction as Mm -hmm. well because Mm -hmm. it's been in my whole life and stuff. But, you know, we talk about, we started talking before we got on the podcast about who has the right to write what, which I think is such a popular conversation. Yep. I don't know if you have any thoughts about what you wrote and mm-hmm. like, did you have someone, it's very well written. And mm-hmm. so in my opinion as a writer, mm-hmm. like every writer's 
I want to say that, you know, fiction is open and you're allowed Mm -hmm. to write Mm -hmm. whatever you want as Mm -hmm. long as it does it justice. But I also understand there's delicate, Mm -hmm. you know, historical conversations and layers to everything. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's just like interesting to have these conversations. And I don't know if you have any. So thinking about addiction as the topic. Yep. What do you what do you what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I absolutely think that people are allowed to write you know, no one, I, I, I'm not here to tell anybody what they can and can't write. You know, I think there, like you're saying, is is room for lots of conversation around this. Mm-hmm. I don't know that people should just be able to write whatever they want. I don't know that that's true either. But I think that, you know, I, I, I come back to, you know, the, the the questions Alexander Chi has this these the series of three questions that he kind of referenced as what he now when people ask him well how how do I write about someone who doesn't look like me right and so he says it doesn't give them advice anymore he asks them three specific questions and I oh, think do that, you know what those questions I can look are? them up and I because I, I don't want to say them wrong I can definitely find them because I've been thinking about this a lot so he there's an article in Vulture this October and and it's a great article it's worth everybody reading so the first question is why do you want to write from this character's point of view and the second is do you read writers from this community currently and the third is why do you want to tell this story Mm. and I think you can use those questions you know, why would I want to tell a story about an addict? You know, do I read writers who are addicts? Have I have I have I read their stories? Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I think you can. I think you can use those those questions no matter what it is that you're sitting down to write, because as a really good starting place, I think as white people, we have a tendency to just assume that because we want to do something we should be able to do it i think that's how this country works for us you know there's the narrative of just you just got to put in your hard work and Mm -hmm. you're going to get whatever it is that you want you know and so therefore you're allowed to have it and i think that is very much a white narrative a white Mm -hmm. you know middle class upper class narrative and i think we have to be careful of that that assumption that that because we want to do something therefore we can do it and therefore we should do it and I think there's a way in which we can absolutely contribute to important narratives, important stories without taking stories away from people. Mm. Um, and I think it needs, you know, if you've had addicts in your life and that's part of your experience, right? then that's not something that you are going to have to walk real far to get. You know, you, you can, that's yours. You know, that's your experience. That's your story. If I grew up navigating what it meant to be a white person in an interracial relationship, you know, I can write about that. That's something I personally can can write about. I, you know, if we're going to take it all the way contemporary, you know, I was not molested by a teacher, mm-hmm. you know. So if I wanted to write about that, I think I really would need to do some soul searching about why is that the topic I want to write about? Mm-hmm. You know, that isn't something that happened to me. It isn't even something that happened to someone close to me that I know of, you know. So it's nothing in my own experience. You're referencing my I'm, dark Vanessa right. that we were talking about right. before. So yeah. It's not like I don't think that's a really important topic. It's I do. I think that's something that's really it's just something we should be talking about and, and we should be hearing those stories of those people because I bet there's a lot of people out there that, that need to read that, you know, that mm-hmm. want to understand that experience either because it's something they've also experienced or, you know, for whatever reason. But it's not something I've experienced. Mm-hmm. So in order for me to write about that, I would have to do a massive amount of research. I would have to really, really, you know get in, into the archives of what that means. And and you also have to just be committed somewhat spiritually mm-hmm. to it. You know, like I think a lot when these questions come up of the writer David Mitchell, he's mm-hmm. one of my like favorite authors of mm-hmm. all time. And he writes, 
with a heavy Japanese and Asian culture influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. married a woman who's Japanese, his, you know, he lives in Japan mm-hmm. and like number nine dream when it came out when he was like, I don't know, 28 or mm-hmm. 30 or something mm-hmm. like that. It was obviously like all Asian characters and mm-hmm. he's just, he's deeply rooted mm-hmm. into the culture, but not because that's his culture. Right. It's because he's like, that's the culture he fell in love with mm-hmm. and has spent his entire life and mm-hmm. is he's deeply invested. Mm-hmm. And the writing is just fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, mm-hmm. there are not writers alive, many who can mm-hmm. write like David Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, like these conversations to me, they, you know, it is, it's very nuanced to have, like, I like those questions because mm-hmm. they help you get to that mm-hmm. nuance. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's not helpful for someone like me to just say fiction writing, you can write about whatever you right. want, because that gives license to a lot of people who mm-hmm. are never going to think deeply right. about right. a culture or mm-hmm. a subject mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. And they are going to do it injustice. And that's right. how we get back to where we are today. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about American Dirt, the what's her name? Cummins? Janine Cummins. Janine yep. Cummins. Yep. And, you know, I think uh, to me, you know, the activism that came out of that is 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 the beautiful thing. You know, the the mobilization, the the fact that, you know, Miriam Gerba and, and David Bullis, they were able to to. I love Miriam Gerwa. Yeah. You, you read Mean? I, I have read Mean. So and, good. And she's, you know. The fact I wrote a review on it a couple years awesome. ago anyway. <laughs> they were able to get people to pay enough attention and sit down with, you know, the people at Macmillan and get them to mm-hmm. agree to really look at their practices. Yeah. And, you know, should it have come to that? No. They, they should have been, all this should have been happening anyway. If you're going to write you know, if, if this is what you're planning to make your money off of, you know, think about what you're doing. But again, it's it comes back to that assumption of we we want to do it, so we're going to do it. And I think they got they got caught out there. Yeah, and, and they should have. And if you're yeah. not familiar with the controversy going around the book American Dirt or My Dark Vanessa slash slash excavation, the mm-hmm. memoir, I would highly suggest just looking it up and and or don't <laughs> or don't or read the books and be a judge or yourself don't. yeah read. From the excerpts that i've read from american dirt i'm just like some of these are laughable mm-hmm. stereotypes mm-hmm. how could anyone right. let that go forward and right. and we were talking about this before yep. to me it seems that the publishing company almost wanted to put this like Flatiron wanted to put it out there because they almost like how you would not know that controversy would be immediately around this book is kind of baffling to me. So it feels almost like that, like it's so icky that this is a publicity Mm -hmm. stunt on its own because I bet it's sold books from just, she's like, she's, She's like, it's like still number one. I, you know, I don't know enough about it. And I feel like there's a lot of people who know so much that it's, again, it's one of those things that I'm not really necessarily in a place to speak on it when there are a lot of people that, Mm -hmm. that are speaking so well on it. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would say looking to those writers for some real clarification about what's happening. I think that, you know, what I've been really kind of thinking about a lot and, and thinking about writing about is, you know, as a white writer, you know, Janine Cummings <coughs> wanted to, you know, from what she's saying, she she wanted to tell us, she was concerned about immigration. She, she wanted to tell an important story. There are others who have lived through that, who've <coughs> experienced that, who have already told that story. And so that's mm-hmm. part of the problem. But I think, you know, there is this struggle for white writers to figure out, well, how can I, how can I, what can I write about, right? What, what, what is it that I can write about that's going to contribute to changing things, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that, that white writers often think, well, okay, I'll write about a, a not white character, mm-hmm. you know? And then we get back to that same place, you know? There's a lot that white folks can be writing about to address racism, mm-hmm. you know? White folks created racism Mm -hmm. so they can write a lot about it and really like we can really look at ourselves and really think about what are we doing 
how what characters can we create that we know really really well because they're our mom or our coworker or ourselves you know mm-hmm. what are we doing you know how are we impacting the world right now there's a hundred thousand stories right there you know without taking them away from someone else mm-hmm. um I just, I I think that there is this idea that in order to write about racism and, and, and racial controversy, racial controversy and, and, and things like that, that, that we need to be writing about, you know, people of color when in reality, all you need to write about racism is white folks. Mm -hmm. And, but it means taking a hard look. You know, it means really looking at ourselves. And I think, you know, that's where the work, that's where the work is. And, and it can be, it can be done, you know, and it won't take, you don't need a, you don't need a sensitivity reader. (laughs) You don't need to work, go to a workshop to learn how to write about yourself, you know, but it means really looking at how you and the people around you do the things, how I, I look at myself. What do I do? When I was writing these white characters who were living alongside characters of color, I had to really think about, well, how would they really act in that moment? And what would they, how would they see what they were, how would they think about what they were doing? And what, you know, from their perspective, what would they think they were doing? And then how would it be perceived, mm-hmm. you know, by someone else. So, you know, this character, Mina, might think she's helping. Right. You know, but really she's she's just trying to make herself feel better. Right. And that's the kind of, that's where, that's the sort of stuff we as as white people can, can get into and start putting on a page. And then people can read it and be like, oh, I do that. Shit. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't do that. You know, or maybe I should at least be more cognizant mm-hmm. of that all of a sudden people are like i realize i i say things like that and i'm like yeah well good that's good now you know you say it before you didn't even know that you did it you know and mm-hmm. that's okay and like it's it's okay to be aware and understand and and that's really the first the first step were there any really uncomfortable moments writing the book for you that like kind of gave you pause no, I really tried not to write about anything that I didn't feel totally like like I had either experienced it or, mm-hmm. you know, had talked at length to someone who had experienced it or witnessed it happen. You know, I didn't – I decided that anything that felt like mm, maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe this is too uncomfortable – was my guide mm-hmm. and then you're not putting that in there and you're not going there that's not your your space to go into you know okay. yeah so that was really you know what I were my sort of boundaries is there anything that you learned from this book even in like publishing it mm-hmm. or well, that really sticks out was, I what was that laugh for the well my publishing situation was so the the publishing the I was I was bought by Amberjack, you know Amberjack Publishing. This wonderful woman named Dana was the publisher, and Cassandra was my editor. And then around June, they left the publishing house, mm. and then it was kind of not sure what was really going on there, and mm-hmm. there was some shaky ground, and I wasn't really sure who was in charge. And then they brought other people in, and. Thank God there was an, another incredible editor named Sharita that was still there. And so she sort of got me through. And then it got sold to Chicago Review Press. And so it's just been a real, like, the fact that it actually exists in the world almost feels like a little bit of a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the JKS folks were incredible. So I, I learned I learned a lot about how hard it is and how much work it takes to to put something into the world mm-hmm. like this. And I learned that I know a lot more about music than I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's yeah. next? 
What are you working on I'm now? I'm working on a, st- a, a new porn novel. industry. Not a porn novel. industry story. That's a good one. That's got it. That's got to happen. I am finishing up a a work in progress right now that is really kind of thinks about what it means to love and care and be family to someone who is struggling really hard with mental health issues. Mm. And again, something that, you know, kept in my boundaries, feeling like this is something I know from my own Mm -hmm. experiences. I personally haven't had deep struggles with mental health, but many of those who I love and care for and, and call family have. And so... That's, you know, it's a, it's a story about a mother and a daughter. And what's kind of cool is that a lot of it takes place in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. And I just, I kind of didn't really think about it when I went to go stay with a friend in Park Slope. I was like, oh, I'm back in this neighborhood. I can walk around and sort of remember, you know, mm-hmm. these places and, and think about, and a lot of it is about how much the city changed, you know. And so it was nice to sort of see like, oh, that, that shop's actually still there. And oh, no, that's definitely gone so that game you play when you leave new york and you come back and you're like yeah what's here that wasn't here before Mm -hmm. so yeah that i'm 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 excited about it and it's sort of starting to get into be in decent shape (laughs) it's kind of a yeah yeah, it takes it takes so long well where can people find you and and information about the noepe center too so the best place to find all of that would be on my website which is matheamore.com that was website was made by my incredible daughter and she built it for me she does things like that which is cool and there's links to stuff that's happening at noepe there as well and then if you go to the Featherstone Center for the Arts website, there is a link to all of the things that are happening at Noepe. Right now, we're just sort of doing what we're calling open writing hours and just opening up the space mm-hmm. on Sunday afternoons. Whoever wants to come in needs a quiet space Ooh. away from home, away from the laundry to just sit. That's there's great. Wi-Fi, you know, it's warm. And there's I'll drive usually, the six hours uh, or whatever it's, it is. It's a really <laughs> nice thing to just have on a Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of takes that that edge off of when am I going to write? When am I going to write? And you're like, okay, you're going to write mm-hmm. tomorrow afternoon from one to three. And, and that is, and so it's a, you know, a little group that all kind of shows up with their computers or their notebooks and sits quietly and writes for a couple hours. And it's, it's good. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today thank and congrats you. on the book oh, and all the success. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 49th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, your host, Katie Rainey, and featuring Mathea Murray. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. Our podcast assistant is Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.